Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. Uh, we're to chapter 16 today as we continue looking at the story of Samson, the 12th and the final judge. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 22. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version this morning. Now children, I, I wish I could tell you that all the stories in the Bible uh, were happy ones. But unfortunately, I can't do that. And this morning we have what is a very sad story indeed. And it is the story of Samson and Delilah. It's quite a famous story. And uh, Delilah is synonymous with betrayal and with deceit. And yet at the end of this, we're going to see that uh, it's really all Samson's fault. And so he can't really blame Delilah for what happens here. But uh, let's listen what happens in the life of this great judge. And you'll remember uh, the passage we let, read last week ended with in, in chapter 15, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So uh, Samson has served faithfully as a judge and leader of his people. And uh, now this is occurring uh, toward the end of his life. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning when it's daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like other men. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, If they bind me securely, with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten and the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. There ends the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to his people. Well, Jesus said famously in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. It is a fundamental principle that you are not able to effectively serve two masters. Uh, Jesus here speaks specifically about trying to serve God and money. But this principle applies to all kinds of things that we might want to try to serve equally with God. We cannot serve God and our work, or God and our family, or God and our friends, or God and our hobbies. Because when push comes to shove, you will have to choose what your highest allegiance is to. That always happens uh, at some point. And here we see the story of God's servant, Samson, being pushed into this kind of a choice, this inevitable crash, deciding if he's going to love God and serve him, or if he's going to love uh, his Philistine um, uh, girlfriend. And uh, we see here it's a spectacular crash when this inevitable uh, conflict happens. And there's a warning here for us, but there's also a tremendous note of encouragement because we see that although Samson falls spectacularly, God does not abandon him. God stays with him. And that's the message that God has for you this morning from this passage. Beware the temptation of trying to serve God with divided loyalties, but at the same time, take heart that God will never abandon his true children, even when they fall. And that's written down for you in the outline that you may want to use to follow along with this morning. Children, I'd have you draw a picture of Samson and Delilah and maybe something about what happens to Samson's hair. 
Uh, you did a very nice job last week drawing pictures of Samson and the jawbone. And I should have told Alejandra, they did a wonderful job drawing pictures of Alejandra up here joining the church. Uh, so uh, you children who gave those to me, I've given them back to your parents. You may want to take them and show Alejandra. She will be very impressed with your pictures of her as well. Well, the first thing I want us to see as we look through this passage is you cannot serve God and your own sin. This is the issue of divided loyalties in verses 1 to 3. Now, I read for you, again, reminding you of how chapter 15 ended. With Samson, finally, it was a sort of a torturous process, but God worked in his life to bring him to the point where he embraced his calling. He took on the role of a judge, and it says he faithfully judged Israel then for 20 years during the time of the Philistines. And by all rights, the story of Samson should have ended there. If we were keeping consistent with all the other judges in this book, um, the judge judges for a certain period of time, then the judge dies, then the judge is given an honorable burial. That's what happened to every single judge prior to Samson. Samson was very unique, though, as we've seen. He was unique in his calling and ministry. Uh, Gordon Ketty speaking about this. This cross-reference is in your uh, outline, this, uh, this quotation. Samson was raised up by God to punish the oppressors and deliver the oppressed people of God. He was therefore strengthened by the Lord that so that he could do it by himself what ordinarily would have required the whole nation. And we did say that's unique. Samson operated alone. He never had an army helping him. He never had anybody fighting with him. And so sadly, this should have been the end and he should have died and been given an honorable burial. But Samson doesn't die and exit the scene gracefully. He goes out like an exploding rocket and it's sad how this happens we see in verses one to three sort of a transition into the story of Samson and Delilah and in verse one it tells us he goes down to Gaza so Gaza is one of the five major Philistine cities it's on the coast on the Mediterranean Sea it's quite a distance uh, I think what this indicates is Samson at this point as the judge and, and leader in Israel, is able to travel freely. He's not really afraid uh, to be traveling around. Uh, perhaps he presumes somewhat on uh, the power that God's given him. But we see him using his freedom uh, actually in a sinful way. He abuses it. He says he goes down and sees a harlot there in Gaza and goes in and spends the night with her. So he spends the night with a woman who's not his wife. And uh, make no mistake about it, this is a serious sin on his part. And it puts him in danger's way. Verse 2 tells us that when they learn he's there, they shut up the city gates. They decide, well, he can't escape at night while he's locked in here. Then we will deal with him in the morning. It's our chance to kill our enemy and the leader of the Israelites. And we don't know exactly what happens here. Perhaps he senses something is going on, but verse 3 tells us he gets up in the middle of the night, probably when the guard has finally gone to sleep. He says, uh, the locked gate is no problem for me. He goes right up to the gate, and he rips it out of the ground and out of the wall, and then carries it uh, some miles away, actually, up a hill facing Hebron, and there it sort of displays it. And this scene is really... Um, 
fraught and, and full of symbolism because Hebron at this time would have been a leading city in Judah. This is where David first establishes his capital. So it's an important city. And the point really is here Samson is uh, displaying his power against the enemy by tearing out the gate, right? The city gate would represent their defenses, their protection. It's also where, well, where the elders would meet to do business. So it's an open defiance against the Philistines. And he sort of takes it up and offers it uh, and puts it on display so that Israel can see uh, what he's done here. And so it's an, it's a, it's an act of uh, defiance against the Philistines, an act of victory and humiliation against the Philistines and victory for uh, Israel. And the point that the narrative is making here is that you have this very conflicted man who at the same time is engaging in his lust, is, is trying to love uh, at least aspects of the Philistines, but still clearly a servant of God, seeking to work on God's behalf and lead God's people against their enemy. And so this is what makes him a complicated character. Uh, one, one of the fascinating things I think about uh, Donald Trump is that he engenders such extreme responses and I know I'm taking a risk even mentioning his name in this service, right? Because some of you are having visceral responses of one kind or another. And this is what's so strange about it, because on one hand, um, people view everything he does as evil. This is evil incarnate, and so therefore everything he does is evil. He can't possibly do anything good. And on the other hand, there are people who see him as sort of a modern-day hero. He can never do anything wrong. Uh, it's impossible for him to do anything wrong. And decidedly, the truth is in the middle of those two extremes. I'm not going to argue for where it is exactly, but it's in the middle of those two extremes. And what's interesting is when you read the commentators trying to understand Samson, there's often a similar effect where some commentators, and these would be in the minority today for sure, would sort of see everything Samson does as good. Somehow, he's playing this 4D chess, you know, and uh, we can't see it, but he's somehow scheming, and this is all part of the, uh, this, his plan. Okay, and then on the other hand, everything he's doing is self-motivated, it's sinful, it's rebellious, and through and through, uh, he's not obeying God. And, and again, the truth is somewhere in the middle. He is a legitimate servant of God. The, the, the scripture establishes that, and God uses him. But at the same time, he is a man with a weakness. And what we're being shown here in this little transition part is what his weakness is. Uh, children, I know you know the superheroes way better than I do. I can't keep any of them straight, especially because they've been multiplying by, by, like, by crazy uh, in the recent years. But I do know that most superheroes have a weakness, uh, whether it's kryptonite or uh, their own pride or whatever it is, uh, they have some kind of a weakness. And what we're being shown here is Samson's fundamental weakness. His fundamental weakness is that he is a man of mixed allegiances. He's trying, on the one hand, to serve God, and in, in this little portion, serve God by day, love Philistia by night. And this is exactly the kind of double-mindedness that we were talking about with the children earlier. The very first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. God says, I'm your God. I've saved you. How do you live as one of my people? You have no other gods before me. You love God most of all. And uh, you cannot divide your loyalties. You cannot successfully be married to multiple spouses. You cannot uh, simultaneously play on two opposing sports teams. And you cannot serve God and your own sin, no matter what that sin is. That's our first point. Secondly, we see here, don't underestimate sin's power to deceive and blind you. So now we transition into the story of Delilah. And we see here in verses 4 to 14 this, uh, this game that Samson ends up playing with her. It tells us in verse 4 that he, he loved this woman in the valley of Sorek. Uh, her name is a, a bit of a mystery. It sort of seems like it might have some allusions to the night. Uh, it's a Semitic name. It's a Jewish name, but uh, commentators feel like she must have been uh, a Philistine woman. And uh, she's attracted to Samson. He's attracted to her. We don't know what the relationship was like, but the relationship was there. It's inappropriate. And then we're told in verse 5 that the lords of the Philistines, so that would be the five leaders of these five major cities, they go to exploit this relationship for their own purposes. Now, we read earlier in the story of Samson that uh, the men of Temna used the stick uh, to get uh, his wife, Samson's wife, to do their bidding. They threatened to burn her. Here, it's the carrot approach. There's no threat. There's, we're going to give you each, uh, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So 5,500 pieces of silver, which one commentator estimates could have been the equivalent of around $15 million in buying power uh, in, in that day and age. So we don't know exactly, but it's an enormous amount of money. And uh, so they're going to buy her off. And uh, in verse 6, she goes to Samson and starts asking, where does your great strength lie and how may I bind you? And clearly she has accepted the offer of the Philistine lords and is going to do their bidding. So she asks him what the source of his strength is. And he tells her in verse 7 a fairly ridiculous story about fresh bowstrings. So you take the sinews off the animals and they haven't uh, dried yet and you wrap those around. And so she tries it out. She tests the theory. And Samson gets up and breaks those off. And um, these Philistine soldiers who are hiding nearby, they slink off. And so this basic pattern is repeated uh, two more times in verses 10 to 14. And each time, Samson gives some fantastic story in new ropes or uh, uh, weave my hair into the, into the uh, weaver's beam and, uh, and this will make me weak. And so we, we see this is, this is playing out. Now, when you read the story, your response is, how can anyone be this stupid, right? I mean, that's, that's our natural response. We, 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 he's got her asking these very pointed questions. Then she actually tries the theory out. And each time there are Philistine soldiers hidden nearby, somewhere close at hand, Uh, And he seems to be oblivious of all of this. But understand that this is the author's intent. This is being portrayed to you uh, uh, with with the benefit of 2020 hindsight so that to the reader, your response is, this is so obvious. How did he not see this coming? But the reality is he didn't see it coming. 
And, and you have to think for yourself, what was the nature of their relationship? How was he so swayed by this woman? But he was blind to the deceptive power of sin. And rather than say to yourself, how can this guy be this stupid? The point is for you to say, how is it that I am also sometimes this stupid? In my inability to see sin and temptation around me in my own life. Samson here is being portrayed sort of like the fool in Proverbs. And I've got a lengthy quote from Proverbs 7 in your outline. And it describes a very similar situation. It says, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Right? To the outside observer, it's obvious, but to the person in the midst of the temptation, uh, it seems like nothing is going on. And this can be true for you and for me as well. Our battles with lust or anger, impatience, fear, worry, lack of contentment, whatever it is, whatever form our idolatry takes, we must remember that the devil is cunning. And he lays the snares, as one of my friends said, he knows the roads that you travel on. And it's not as if the devil is trying to get you to travel down some road you never travel on and then set the trap there. He's setting the trap on the road that you already travel on, where you're already walking. And for Samson, this issue of Philistine women was the place where it was easy to set the trap. This is why Jesus tells you to pray, lead us not into, into temptation. Uh, we need to be praying for protection from temptation. And this is why we also need trusted Christian friends. Because who better to tell you you're being an idiot like Samson when that's needed. And we all need a person in our life who will say that to us in love right, when we seem to be walking blindly into a trap as this man was. So don't underestimate sin's power to deceive and blind you. Thirdly, we see here that testing God's boundaries is a dangerous game to play. So as Samson works through these various ruses where he's telling her about the fresh sinews or the new ropes or weaving his hair into the loom, he's treating this all like a game. Now you have to understand, the Philistines think that the source of his great strength is some kind of magic power. Uh, Again, quoting from one of the commentators, he said, Samson must have been a relatively ordinary-looking man in size and weight. And why is that? Because he's saying, why would you pay someone millions of dollars to find out the secret strength of a man who had, let's say, 50-inch biceps? Right? You don't need to pay for that. 
it's obvious why he is, where his strength comes from. So the only way any of this makes sense is if Samson doesn't appear to be some giant hulk of a man and that it's clear that he has supernatural powers that are given to him. So the Philistines think, well, there's, there's some trick to this and we need to figure out what the trick is. And this is why it's so easy for him to suggest these different ridiculous things and they try them all. Because for, for all they know, that this could be the secret. But what you see, though, is a progression that Samson, even as he treats this as a game, is moving closer to what's actually an important issue. And so he starts with the ropes, but then he moves on to his hair. And, uh, and it feels like uh, he's inching ever closer uh, to what's really at issue. And so then finally... In verse 17, it says he tells her all his heart. He entrusts this woman, completely untrustworthy, with uh, the, the essence of his calling and, and this critical information about himself. And this is the danger of sin and of toying with sin, is it draws us along and it makes us feel like we can get away with it and we can play with it and we can get right up to the edge and we know the limits and this is what happens to him. He gets pulled right across the boundary. Again, quoting from Proverbs, this time chapter 6, verses 26 to 29. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? And of course, the answer to those rhetorical questions is no. You play with fire and you will get burned eventually at some point. And so realize here, in Gaza, Samuel, or Samuel Samson seemed to get away with it. Right? He went down to Gaza, he spent the night there, he just gets up and rips the gates off and walks out. So it seems like he gets away with it. And so then he's going to take up with this woman, Delilah. And it seems like he's getting away with it there, too, as he prolongs this relationship, even as he plays this little game with her. But you see how he sets him up, he sets himself up for disaster as he continues to walk this line and to test the boundaries. And, and this is a helpful reminder to us, right? Christian Couples says we're committed uh, to purity in our relationship. Uh, but, but then we're going to spend time alone in her apartment. And, uh, you know, we'll be fine. Uh, you, have a, you have trouble with what you look at on the Internet. And, and yet you put your computer in a place where nobody can observe you, and, and, where, and then you go on your computer at night when there's no one around. Um, you have a shopping addiction. Right? You, you don't get rid of your, you keep your credit cards, all of them active. You find yourself uh, surfing on the internet every evening. And we can go on and on about the, the types of things that are temptations to us, and we think we can keep playing around with them. And it's, it's a deadly, deadly game that we're playing. And Samson shows us that. Fourthly, we also see here that loyalty to God is ultimately a matter of the heart. So Delilah is sure now that Samson has confided in her. In verse 18, so she calls for the lords of the Philistines, come one more time, 
and this time bring your money. Now she's absolutely sure that she's figured it out. So she lulls him to sleep and then she calls for a man to come save off, shave off the locks of his head. And we don't know, maybe she's still not 100% sure because she doesn't cut his hair herself. Children, this is a good trivia question when they ask you who shaved Samson's head. The answer is not Delilah. It's this unnamed Philistine who comes in and cuts his hair. And, and, and so then we see the result. In verse 20, she says, the Philistines are upon you. And he awakes from his sleep and he says, I'll go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Very sad verse indeed. God had left him and he didn't even know it at this time. And here's where I think Christians and sometimes fall into the same magical thinking as the Philistines. Because we start to believe that, well, the, the power was in his hair. And so when the hair was cut off, he lost his power. But that's not what's going on. Now, recognize, he says something really uh, sort of surprising maybe to us, but confirming in verse 17. Because when he told her his heart, he said, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. So we, it seemed like he had ignored this calling, but this confirms he knew what his calling was from his earliest days. And he knew he'd been set apart as one who would serve God as a, as, as a Nazarite throughout his life. And the key elements of being a Nazarite were, so you're, you're committing yourself to serving God in a comprehensive way for a particular task or for a particular period of time. His situation was unusual because it was for his whole life. You are strictly forbidden to, have, uh, a, a, to be around dead bodies or to take in any fruit of the vine or thirdly, to cut your hair. And despite knowing this, right, we're told Samson ate honey out of a dead carcass, right? He, he totally ignored that aspect of being a Nazarite. Furthermore, and we didn't stress this before, but when he hosted that huge party for his wedding, the, it, it clearly involved drinking. I mean, the word that's translated feast in our, in our translations is actually drinking party. So he's not only engaged in drinking, he's hosting the big party. So he's not followed the dictates of this vow at all. And the only one left was his hair. But recognize the hair was an outward symbol of the actual consecration. And so when a Nazarite got to the end of the time of consecration, they would cut their hair. And that was a symbol that the time of consecration was over. I put in your outline Acts chapter 18. Paul, this talks about the Apostle Paul. Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. So at the fulfillment of the vow, his hair is cut off. It's actually given as a sacrifice. So the cutting of Samson's hair is, is basically the ending of his consecration. And that is why the power left him. It's not because there's anything magical about his hair itself. As Matthew Henry says, his consecration to God was to be his strength. 
For he was to be strengthened according to the glorious power of that spirit which wrought in him mightily. So he has his strength by promise, by God's work, not by nature, not because he's hit the weight room so much. It's because God has blessed him. One of the commentators goes so far as to say, Samson wanted to have his hair cut off. The the reason why he goes along with this is he didn't want He didn't want this job anymore. He was tired of this. He he wanted out. And I'm not sure I agree with that just because the way this ends is is really terrible. So if if that was in his mind, he definitely didn't think this is how it was going to end for him. He actually seems surprised that he's lost his strength. And what the author is really highlighting for us here is that the issue is Samson's heart. He, he comes to the place where he has to decide, am I going to please this woman or God the most? And he chooses the woman. This inevitable conflict when we try to have it both ways, when we try to serve God and love the world. My friends, we had a man in our congregation preach for us a couple of years ago who I would call mighty in the spirit and the scriptures. And he was in the process of becoming a minister in our denomination. And one of the churches that was considering him had some anonymous woman post on their website, this man is not who you think he is. And further investigation revealed that he was living a double life. He, he could preach the gospel powerfully and effectively. But on the side, he was having illicit relationships. He was engaged in the drug culture. And this double life all came out, and you saw this, this incredible crash. And, and this is the challenge that we all face Am I going to serve God wholeheartedly or am I going to try to live this double life where I'm a Christian by day and I'm something else by night? And it's possible to get away with that for some time. But inevitably, a crisis comes and we see what happens. Remember Jesus, when he was tempted, he says... Uh, And the final temptation to the devil, away from you with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's at the heart of it. We love and serve God above all other things. And your ability to withstand temptation and to serve God depends upon your heart, your commitment to love God above all else. Loyalty to God is a matter of the heart. And then finally we see here that we should take heart because God does not abandon his true children. Verse 21 surely has to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. This great defender of God's people is taken back to the city where he tore out the gates he's now blind he'll never see again children when you lose an eye you cannot bring it back 
he will never see again. He's chained up in the prison and he's given a hand mill to grind flour, which would have been considered uh, women's work in those days and would have been just there to add to his humiliation. From an outward perspective, this man has been utterly forsaken and brought as low as he could be brought. And yet, our passage ends in verse 22 with a significant note of hope. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. If you go look at number six, it tells you how the Nazarite vow worked. And if a person who had taken the vow became unclean, exposed to a dead body, or had had, had, uh, accidentally uh, drunk the fruit of the vine or something like that, the process was to then shave your head and to start the period of consecration all over again. It became a renewal of the vow. And so what we're being shown here, the author is reminding us that this story is not yet over. And this is really important to understand that despite the fact that Samson is in this situation because of his bad decisions, God does not abandon him. There are real and terrible consequences to his sin. And he's experiencing them. But he is a genuine child of God. And if you are a genuine child of God, the Lord will not abandon you, even if you fall spectacularly. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God will not abandon Samson, and that's the wonderful hope that we have. This, This man that I spoke of who preached in our congregation, if he is a genuine believer, I don't know his heart. Maybe he was a hypocrite all the time. But if he is a genuine believer, child of God, then he's not beyond the reach of Jesus Christ, even with what he's done, which is spectacularly bad. He's not beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. And this is because Jesus Christ is the one true perfect judge who came into the world never double-minded, never playing away around with sin, perfectly sinless and faithful, never blinded, never deceived, never wavering in the least. And recognize as bad as Samson's situation here is at the end of this story, this is nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus Christ suffered in Samson's place and in your place if you're a believer. He went to the cross Samson had to know in that prison that at least he had brought this all on himself. Jesus went to the cross knowing he was innocent, completely sinless, carrying the sins of others and dealing not only with physical suffering but with the anguish of God's wrath being poured out upon him for all God's people. Jesus suffered in that way even though he was innocent so that Samson would be spared the wrath of God, so that you, if you are a genuine child of God, trusting in Jesus Christ, would also be spared the wrath of God. 
Come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Trust in him. Avoid the tragedy of ignoring the Lord. And in his strength, seek his help to have a single mind, to put away uh, our playing around with sin, to seek his help in seeing clearly the temptations that are around us, and then following after him as he enables us. If you're God's child, even if you've fallen, and even if it's been spectacular, come to him in faith and repentance, and he promises to work in your life. So this is our message this morning. Beware the temptation of trying to serve God with divided loyalties, but take heart that God will never abandon his true children through Jesus Christ, even when they fall. Let's pray and we'll ask for his mercy. Heavenly Father, we confess that this is a painful story to read about. A man who was given such gifts and abilities, who knew what his calling was, who had been used by you in incredible ways, and yet struggled not to love the things in the world. And not to have his loyalties divided. And Lord, we thank you for showing us that uh, if we have lives that are like this, uh, we will inevitably uh, crash, uh, that we cannot maintain uh, other loves on the level of our love for you. And I pray right now that you would help each one of us as we think about what in our own lives uh, might be a danger to us and that you would help us to put these things in perspective, to love anything we love in the world, to love it for your sake, and to love you most of all. We pray for your help, Lord, that we would not be deceived by our sin, that we not, would not play games with our sin, but that we might be able to serve you uh, wholeheartedly, because our Lord Jesus Christ uh, did so in our place. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to apply these things, even in uh, these coming days, uh, that each one of us would know your Spirit's work in our life. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now let's sing back our praise to the Lord from Psalm 33. We're going to sing Psalm 33, Selection C. In the first part of this psalm, uh, we give thanks to the Lord for his great work in creation and in maintaining the world, ruling over the nations. Uh, but then you see uh, in stanza eight, the second half of that, the king is not saved by the strength of his army. The soldier as well should not trust in his own might. The strength of a horse does not make rescue certain. A horse is a false hope for winning the fight. The whole point is we are not to trust in our gifting or in our abilities, but only in the Lord. And that's how the, this portion of the psalm ends. Behold, the Lord's eye is upon all who trust in him. It is a matter of our heart that we would love him as we should. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 33 C.
Well, good afternoon, everyone. Please turn in God's Word to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, and is found on page 1408 of the Church Bible. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at the second letter to the churches in Revelation. And I encourage you to grab a handout if you haven't already. So Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 8 to 11. Listen, this is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Well, how many of you are frequent visitors to the gym? Whether you're frequent or not, I'm sure you know uh, what to expect when you go into the gym. There are lots of weights, there are treadmills, there are other cardio equipment. And the other essential part of a gym are the mirrors, or the mirrors as I would say, but the mirrors. And these mirrors are on every single wall. Yes, they're there to help you with your technique, and they're there for the buff guys who like to flex in front of them. But they're also there to remind you that your muscles are not that big, and that yes, your belly really is that size. These mirrors are there to make you uncomfortable. And so you either respond by thinking, I'm never coming back here again, or it forces you to work harder, to push through, to get the results you want. Well, in life, suffering is a bit like a mirror. <laughs> suffering reveals a lot about yourself. We either avoid suffering and seek comfort, or we face it. And as a result, we grow in our walk with Christ. And the church that we're considering this afternoon is this church in Smyrna, a church that was familiar with suffering. So last week, we considered the church at Ephesus, a church that was orthodox. It loved God's word. It loved theology. And yet we read how it had lost its first love. It had grown cold. It had lost its enthusiasm for Christ. And so Christ called this church to remember the good news or face losing its lampstand. Well, today in considering the letters, uh, the letter that the church in Smyrna received, I want you to see that suffering has a test of your faithfulness to Christ. But you are not to fear, for he has promised you the crown of life. And so children, that's what I want you to draw draw a crown and remembering that Christ has promised you the crown of life if you remain faithful to him. So firstly, understand that faithfulness does not mean you are immune to suffering. 
So understand that faithfulness does not mean you're immune to suffering. So last week we considered the city of Ephesus. Today we are traveling 35 miles north to the city of Smyrna. And let's briefly consider some of the background to the city of Smyrna and the church that's located in this city. So when the Greeks took over the city of Smyrna, they rebuilt it and they carefully planned out the streets in the city to be wide and to be paved and to be organized. The main street became known as the Golden Street that ran from west to east. At one end of the street, there's this huge temple to the god Zeus, and at the other end, there's another temple to Zibel. And in the middle of the city, there was a hill, and the hill is called Mount Pegasus. And on top of this hill, there stood an Acropolis, more temples to more gods. And these temples in Smyrna were considered to be some of the best in the empire. The city had two harbors, a gymnasium, a theater that could hold up to 20,000 people, a stadium. Smyrna was a wealthy and a beautiful city. And during the time of the Romans, Smyrna wanted to be a Roman city. And so it cut off its ties with the Greeks and it appealed to Rome for help. And Smyrna would call itself the first Roman city of Asia Minor. And to show their loyalty, they even set up this cult worship to Rome by creating the goddess Roma. She is Rome deified. And they established this worship by building a temple for her. And to encourage this worship, the city subsidized sacrifices of animals to Roma so everyone can afford to sacrifice to her. No one was without excuse. And if you didn't worship the goddess Roma, well, you would be seen to be unpatriotic. You would have been seen to be a threat to this city and its special relationship that it was building with Rome. But by God's grace, in the city of Smyrna, there is a group of believers. There's a church in Smyrna. And it would be this church that received this letter from Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing about the letter to the church in Smyrna is that it received no rebukes. So the church in Smyrna and also the church in Philadelphia, they are the only two churches not to receive negative criticism in the letters that they receive from Christ. But what would you expect to find in a church that had nothing to be critical about? Well, maybe you would expect to find a large and thriving church, a church that's prosperous, a church that's supporting lots of missionaries, lots of works of mercy, a church that's hugely influential in the city, in politics, in commerce, in the culture, a church that's highly regarded by its local community that it's located in. But this report demonstrates it's the total opposite. The church in Smyrna was under immense persecution. It was far from being a successful church in the world's eyes. Yes, Smyrna was a faithful church, but that does not mean it was immune to suffering. Faithfulness does not equate to success. Our church here in Bloomington should aspire not to be a successful church in the world's eyes, but a church that continues to be faithful. But as we look at the church in Smyrna, realize that faithfulness will often mean suffering. And so secondly, be prepared to suffer for Christ, verses 9 and 10. 
So why are the believers in Smyrna suffering? What have they done to bring this on themselves? Well, as I said, Smyrna sought to be a Roman city. It was seeking to devote itself to the Roman gods. Well, this would mean worshiping these gods. It would mean burning incense to the Roman emperor to express your loyalty to him. Well, as Christians, yes, they are to submit to their authorities, but they could not worship them. And by them not taking part, the Christians soon faced hostilities from the Romans. But not only were the Christians facing persecution from the Romans, in our passage we read they were also facing persecution from the Jews. After the death of Christ, Christians were seen by Rome as a Jewish sect, for they could not tell the difference between the Jews and the Christians. And as a result, the Christians were included in this special exemption that the Jews had of not having to worship the emperor. Well, the Jews would not have this. They made sure that the Romans understood that the Jews were not the same as these Christians. And this hatred by the Jews toward the Christians, it can even be seen in Acts. Acts 17, we read of the jealousy of the Jews. Many of their fellow Jews were being converted to Christianity under Paul's preaching. And they caused the city of Thessalonica to be thrown into uproar. Paul then traveled to Berea. And again, the Jews stirred up the crowd in this city too. And so the Jews were making life very difficult for these early Christians. That's why we read of blasphemy or slander by those who say they were Jews. But if they were truly Jews, truly God's people, well, they would not be persecuting Christians. Instead, as we read here, this is a work of Satan. These persecuting Jews had more in common with Satan than God. And so Christ calls them here a synagogue of Satan. We can read that the believers in Smyrna were suffering economically. They were in poverty. And that's because to be able to work in the city of Smyrna, you had to belong to a trade guild. These trade guilds allowed you to buy or sell. Well, the Christians, because they would not worship the emperor, they would not be included in these trade guilds. Their shops would be boycotted. Nobody would buy their goods. Also, as Christians, they would not take part in business decisions that would be immoral. And as I said, Smyrna is full of temples. Well, these temples were full of immorality. And so the believers, they would miss out on these easy profits that others greedily went after and were willing to do the immoral for it. And they would also have been discriminated against when looking for employment. No Jew, no Roman would have been willing to employ them. And then we read that some in the Smyrna church have been thrown into prison. It mentions suffering persecution for 10 days. Well, why such an exact number? Well, in reading the book of Revelation, we must always read it through the lens of the Old Testament. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel and his three friends had to go through a test, a test that would also last for 10 days. 10 days, they would eat only vegetables and drink only water. They would not eat food from the king's table. Instead, they would remain faithful to God. Well, the Christians in Smyrna, they are facing a test. Would they be faithful, just like Daniel and his three friends? Could they hold out for 10 days, enduring the persecution? Would they be faithful, even if it means death? 
For we read in verse 10, to be faithful even to the point of death. And so martyrdom was a real possibility for these believers. But how is this letter relevant to us here in Bloomington today? Suffering and persecution seems a long way from our lives. Yes, there are believers today who are persecuted. We read of Christians being persecuted in other parts of the world. And we read that in the churches around the the world newsletter. And it's not so severe that even mainstream media reports on it. Most recently we heard about the attacks on the churches in Pakistan. But what about here in Bloomington? Well, there may not be physical persecution, but Christians are suffering. Christian values of life and sexuality that once were mainstream, they're now considered irrelevant by most and even hateful and dangerous by some. Christians are losing their jobs because they hold on to Christian principles. There are some industries where it is impossible for a Christian to be employed in those fields. But more often the oppression is not so public. Rather, it's discreet. It can be mocking at work or at school. It can be within families. Certain members of the family will not accept a family member's faith. More and more, we are finding it difficult. But maybe a reason it feels like we're not suffering is because we're not prepared to make a stand for Christ. We remain quiet when we hear of others speak against Christ. We do not object when we know of believers who are facing difficulties. We keep our faith hidden to allow others to think of us in a way that's not true. And the reason we do this is because we are not prepared to suffer. And instead, we must acknowledge that part of Christianity is suffering. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were off the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not off the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so as you talk to your friends, you should not shy away from admitting that you are a follower of Christ, that you can't participate in some of the activities that they are involved in. At work, you have to be ready to say no when you do say no when they want you to do something that you know is wrong that it would compromise your faith in Christ your commitment to the worship of God on the Lord's day should come before even family events and so if your family is organizing lots of get togethers on a Sunday you'll have to say no if it affects your attendance at church be faithful even if it means suffering Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who suffered himself at the hands of the Nazis and who was executed by them, he writes that suffering is the badge of the true Christian. And so you are to be prepared for suffering. And in this letter, we are reminded why we should be willing to suffer for Christ. And we see this in our final three points. And so thirdly, in your suffering, you can be faithful for Christ is in charge. You can be faithful for Christ is in charge. This letter is full of encouragements for the sufferer. 
It's not simply Christians suffer, so suck it up. No, in this letter, Christ calls the church in Smyrna not to be afraid in verse 10. Instead, they are to be faithful by trusting in him. But why should they trust in Christ? Why should you trust in Christ when you face suffering? Well, in verse 8, we see that he is the first and the last. He is eternal. Now, the city of Smyrna is full of gods, but none of these gods are eternal. At some stage, they were created. And that's most easily seen with this goddess, Roma. She was created by the people of Smyrna itself. And they all knew this. But that is true of every god that is worshipped. But Christ, he is the exception. Before man was born, Christ existed. Only Christ is God. All the others are not real. And so Christ, only he has the authority. But we also see his authority in that the Smyrna Christians would be allowed to suffer. And we read for ten days. But no more than that. It's a definite time. And that's because Christ is in charge. So it may seem like the world is out of control, but recognize Christ's sovereign rule. No one is suffering any more than Christ allows them to. Maybe you find yourself in a concert or in a play, and you're not enjoying it. You're just wishing it would be over. And you're carefully following the program, recognizing, okay, it's going to be after this next song or after this next act and it will be over. And that helps you through it. Well, in the same way in our suffering, it's not going to last forever. It's only going to last for 10 days. And so by knowing that it's a set time, you think, okay, I can do this. For a short time, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to face hardship. Now, it's not that the 10, de- ten days here or 10 literal 24 hours. We've been praying for pastors in prison in East Asia, and it's been months, maybe it's even been years now. But the point of the 10 days is that it's a definite period of time that will come to an end. And when you compare it to the infinite time we have in eternity with Christ, well, this period is insignificant. Yes, you're called to suffer, but realize that your suffering is not indefinite. Christ will bring it to an end. You can trust him because he is sovereign in your suffering. You can be faithful for you know Christ is in charge. Well, fourthly, in your suffering, you can be faithful for Christ is at work in your suffering. Verse 9. So we read that Christ knew of the Smyrna's works, of their tribulation, of their poverty, even the blasphemy that they were facing. Christ knows their suffering. But Christ isn't simply a sympathetic ear. It's not simply that Christ suffered and so you suffer. No, Christ is at work in their suffering. He had a plan. He had a purpose in it. And that's obvious when after he writes that he knows their poverty, he says, you are rich. That suffering is making these Smyrna believers richer Christians. Now, they're not richer in material possessions, but richer in the fact that their faith has grown. Rich in that they now know Christ in a more intimate way. They are sharing in his sufferings. They are trusting Christ even in what they are facing. 
So they're not responding by being stoical and trying not to feel or trying not to respond. No, they're using the suffering that they are facing to grow in their love for Christ. We often have a desire to be rich, to have a higher salary or a more successful business, a larger home or a faster car. But these status symbols of the world, they do not make you rich. They're worth nothing compared to spiritual riches. And it's suffering that helps you see that that is what's most important. It helps you appreciate God's word. It helps you appreciate Christian fellowship. It helps you appreciate Jesus Christ. It's only through him strengthening you that you get through the suffering. Before suffering, it's easy to think, well, I can just depend on myself. I don't need Jesus. I don't need other Christians. I don't need God's word. Well, suffering helps crash that delusion, that deluded understanding of yourself so that you see that you don't have the resources of your own. Instead, you need Christ. And this is God at work. Rutherford writes, it's the Lord's wise love that feeds us with hunger and makes us fat with wants and desertions. So whatever suffering or persecution you're facing, Christ is reshaping you to depend, not on yourself, but on him. To appreciate what you have in him. And rather than shy away from hard times by seeking comfort, you are to do the hard thing. You are to put yourself out there. Paul could write to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so in your suffering, recognize that Christ is at work in your life, and he will bring it to completion. You are the richer for it. Well, fifthly and finally, in your suffering, Christ has promised you the crown of life. Verses 10 and 11. So verse 10, we read that you are to be faithful until death. I will give you the crown of life. Your suffering could even mean that you will die. Maybe that sounds too extreme. How is Christianity worth it if it would mean the end of life? But Jesus is telling us that even death will not be the end. And why is that? Well, in verse 8 we read that Christ died and yet rose to life again. Christ who died on the cross, he is alive. And so he demonstrates that he has power over death. He is victorious. And so you're trusting in the one who has defeated death. But if Christ has defeated death, then why do we die? Well, Christ has defeated the second death. We read of this in verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death, that refers to God's judgment. It is an eternal death. The second death is hell, where there will be continual suffering. It is for those who will not put their trust in Jesus, but rather put their trust in themselves. But for those who are in Christ, those trusting Christ, they will not face the second death. And that is how our first death has lost its sting. That is how Paul can say to the Philippians, death is better by far, because in death, we go to be with Christ. In death, we receive the crown of life. And this is the victor's crown that an athlete receives in winning a race. 
That is what you are to consider when you are in the midst of suffering. That God sees you as a winner, for in Christ you have already gained the victory. And so maybe you're facing opposition at work, and your boss calls you in to see him the next morning. What is the worst case scenario that he can do to you? He can kill you, but that is not the end. Your friends call you up. They're not happy with your views on a particular moral issue. Well, what is the worst that they can do to you? Well, they can kill you. Again, that is not the end. The police knock on your door in the middle of the night. They arrest you. You're sentenced to death. It might look like you have lost, but you have failed. But remember, even the very worst thing that can happen to you, death itself, you are not to fear, for you will receive the crown of life. Christ has conquered death. When he returns, he will banish death altogether, including the first death. Suffering is part of the Christian life now. But we can look forward to Christ's return, and he will put an end to all suffering. But until then, let us use suffering like a mirror. It is revealing of who you are. It's revealing of your weaknesses. And you can respond in two ways. You can run and hide. You can believe in the devil's lies, thinking that you can't handle it, or that Jesus is not worth it, or that there are more important things in this world. Or the other option is to see the challenge, but yet be faithful recognizing that Christ is eternal, that he is sovereign. And so you submit to him that Christ is working through your suffering to make you spiritually richer, that Christ is victorious, that through him we have salvation. Through him there is eternal life. We are living in a world that is becoming more and more like first century Smyrna, The other week, Colin Elliott mentioned what happened to his friends who were ostracized in their own neighborhood for not sharing in the opinion of others. My thought was, I could see the exact same thing happening in my neighborhood. In my neighborhood, if you have non-native trees or plants growing in your yard, you are in trouble. Well, how much more if you're seen to be intolerant? This letter to Smyrna, It becomes more and more applicable to us each day. And so let us respond like these believers in Smyrna to be faithful to Christ, even if that means suffering. So see suffering as a test of your faithfulness to Christ. But you're not to fear, for you will receive the crown of life. Well, one believer who passed the test in Smyrna was Polycarp. He was a disciple of John and He was a bishop of this church in Smyrna. Polycarp, he fled from the city of Smyrna, but he was tracked down. The officer in charge urged him to recant of his faith in Christ. The officer asked, what harm can it do to sacrifice to the emperor? Well, Polycarp refused. The proconsul called to him, swear and I will release you, revile Christ. And Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the proconsul persisted, Swear by the genius of Caesar, I wild beasts, if you do not change your mind, I will throw you to them. But Polycarp would not recant. And he was later burnt at the stake. His last words were a prayer. 
O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you. I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. And we read that the wind drove the flames away from Polycarp, and so it prolonged his suffering. A soldier put an end to his life with a sword. What is interesting about Polycarp was that he was most likely in the church in Smyrna when it received this letter from Christ. Christ's words had prepared him for his suffering. This letter would be very relevant to Polycarp. This letter could become very relevant to you. So listen to what the Spirit is telling you, the church today. See suffering as a test of your faithfulness to Christ. But you're not to fear. For he has promised you the crown of life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a a heavy topic. We shudder at the thought of suffering. And yet, Lord, help us not to fear. Instead, that we would be prepared for it. That we would be faithful to you that we would recognize that you are in charge, that you are sovereign. And so help us to trust you in what you've called us to face. Help us to see the riches that we have as a result of being in you, despite being seen as poor in the world's eyes. And help us to fix our eyes on you, for you have promised us the crown of life because of the salvation that we have in and through Christ. And so we thank you for Jesus, and we pray for your help in the suffering that you have called us to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your psalm book to Psalm 21a. Psalm 21a, the psalm speaks of a king and of a king that has won the victory. But then also notice in stanza two, for you have welcomed him with gifts, with blessings manifold, and you have placed upon his head a crown of purest gold. And so here we read of this crown. The king is Christ, and because we are in him, we also enjoy the victory. We also get to wear this crown, this crown of life. And so let us praise God with these words, knowing our salvation is forever sure. So stand and sing Psalm 21a. Mm -hmm. 